Welcome to Blue Days, a Chelsea Football Club podcast retelling the story of the club's dramatic 96-97 season. In this second episode, we recall the life, death and legacy of supporter, benefactor and vice-chairman Matthew Harding, who was tragically killed in October 1996. The tragic death of Matthew Harding has touched not only the footballing nation, but the whole nation. You would talk to people in pubs and they would all go, God, I wish we had a Matthew Harding. When Matthew came in, he was fresh, he was enthusiastic. He had this real passion and drive to put Chelsea in another level. I think just a fan that decided to put their money where their heart was. The pleasure and the pain, Chelsea are both those things to me. It's hard to explain, but like any great love, I don't question it or feel tempted to stray. I just know that Chelsea and I were meant for each other. Matthew Harding's words will resonate with any Blues fan, indeed any football fan. The pleasure and the pain, it is what makes the sport we all love such a special one. Harding's support of the Blues began in the early 1960s when his father, who had been based in the Chelsea barracks during the Second World War and had grown an interest in the football team playing nearby, took him to Stamford Bridge for the first time. He was nine years old, and they used to watch from the stilted former North Stand. Many years later, Matthew would have children of his own. His daughter Hannah is now, like her three siblings, Joel, Luke and Patrick, a season ticket holder in the stand named after her dad. She explains how his passion bloomed. When he was at boarding school, he was really, really into football. Well, really, really into Chelsea, should I say. So it became a bit of an obsession, and that's what he concentrated on. I suppose when you're at boarding school, you have a lot of time on your own, and um, it sort of went from there, really. But he was always quite obsessive with things, so if he was into something, he was properly into it. Harding's support for the club continued as he grew older, made a fortune in London's reinsurance markets, and got married and had children. Before long, his daughters and three sons were accompanying him to matches. Joel was the youngest. Thing is, he lived and breathed Chelsea, so it was infectious, really. So you had no choice. You know, we were going home and away, watching Chelsea. It became our lives, really. He was just fun. It was about enjoying life, really, yeah. for him. It was all about enjoyment and fun. And the day out. And the day Football out. It was all about the day out. He was absolutely obsessed with Kerry Victor. To the point, he went to watch an England game once at um, the Old Brighton Stadium, the Goldstone it said Dixon was playing, when we got there it was Lee Dixon. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't interested in England, there were no other Chelsea players playing for England, so it was just complete. Just stood there and then went home again. In the late 80s and early 90s, when Harding started regularly taking his children and travelling to away games, it was the future of Stamford Bridge, rather than relegation to England's second tier, that most concerned the club's hierarchy and supporters. Earlier in the 80s, Chairman Ken Bates had turned the club around from the brink of bankruptcy and helped John Neal's exciting side get promoted back to the top flight in 1984. Now he was in the midst of a draining, decade-long battle against property developers and new ground owners, Marler Estates, who threatened to replace Stamford Bridge with luxury flats. Thankfully, a property market crash contributed to the collapse of the company that had taken on the Stamford Bridge lease. RBS took it over, and so Bates had more time to raise capital to buy the ground. Chelsea pitch owners were set up to protect the victory, but transforming the ground into an all-seater venue would require substantial funds. 
Bates placed an advert in the Financial Times inviting investment, and Harding responded, I'm told you think you're richer than I am, and I thought I'd better ring you to find out, Bates famously opened with when they spoke for the first time in September 93. He never acted like he was wealthy. Mm. So you were never aware, you know, if you met him, you would never know that he had this wealth behind him. So I suppose you weren't, we weren't exposed to it. Harding was worth £125 million. Few people in the country were wealthier. He more or less immediately invested £5 million in the club, and that, together with a £2 million football trust grant, kick-started the redevelopment of Stamford Bridge into the 41,000-capacity, all-seater venue we know today. Harding was also made a director and welcomed onto the Chelsea Village board. It just changed overnight, really. I mean, we went from just coming to games, getting the train up, going to the Imperial beforehand, walking into the stadium, and it just as, as a normal fan, really. And then overnight, people wanted to talk to him. They wanted to come up and shake his hand and ask him about Chelsea and get in the conversation with him, really. He'd talk a lot. Mm. So we'd end up sat there while he talked to everyone and anyone who talked to him. Anyone that would listen about yeah. Chelsea. <laughs> For us, we'd like gone up in the East End and we got really into coming to Chelsea. And then when he put the money in, suddenly we could get a bit behind the scenes. And we used to go, like we'd go in the players' lounge behind the East Stand, or we'd get to go to an away game. And I remember one away game I went to at QPR and we were in the director's box. I've got pictures of me and Vinnie Jones and Graham Asso and Kerry Dixon. And it became a bit... Surreal, you know, because you've been used to being the normal fan and then suddenly you're like, oh, my God. Luke Harding vividly recalls a unique experience he and his brothers got to enjoy. One memory I've got where um, after a game one Saturday, um, me, Joel and Patrick, we kind of half snuck out onto the pitch and there was a load of footballs lying around. And back when the shed end had the temporary stand and we started, Joel jumped into goal and we started having a kickabout and shooting into goals. And we, one of the best memories of my life. And uh, all of a sudden, I think the pitch man came out and started shouting at us, well, what's going on, what are you doing over there? And uh, uh, we didn't know what to say and kind of said, oh, I think our dad said it would be all right, kind of thing. <laughs> and then he went off to go find, find our dad and it was yeah, all right in the end. But... He was at the bar and he drank yeah. some of the players, probably. Probably. <laughs> For other Chelsea fans, Harding's emergence was exciting, as Trevor Nelson and, first, club historian Rick Glanville remember. As supporters, you saw this, if you like, a super fan who thought, I've made more money than I can ever, uh, or could ever dream of. Why wouldn't I try and help my team? Why wouldn't, if they need money to build a stand, uh, why, the, the North Stand as it was, now the Matthew Harding Stand, why wouldn't I give them that money so, so they can build it? If they want to get a player, why wouldn't I make that money available? We just saw this guy as our saviour. You know, Matthew Harding had, was a wealthy guy, a mad Chelsea fan. You know, Ken Bates had been the, the, the governor for so long. He'd done a great job for Chelsea, controversial, but he, he, you know, he kept the club afloat. But this guy was the injection we needed. But it was a sense that Matthew Harding was like the everyman that had become a millionaire and that we would all do that if we won the lottery or whatever. You know, you might try and buy a left back or something like that for your club. He could do that. He could do that for real. Harding's investment was not unconditional. He wanted details on what was going on behind the scenes. And he didn't want his influence to be limited merely to the club's bricks and mortar. He felt he could play a part in helping freshen things up on the pitch, too. The arrival of Glenn Hoddle as player-manager in the summer of 93, shortly before Harding got directly involved with the club, certainly helped in that respect, 
even if, as Hoddle recounts, there was plenty of work to do. When I first came here, the club was in a really poor state, it really was, I've got to say it. Um, I, I come from Swindon and they had better facilities than we had at Chelsea. It was as simple as that, there was no office at the training ground, no phone, even a phone, let alone an office for the manager. Um, it was ridiculous, it really was, it was quite humorous at times, having a BT phone to make a call to uh, Ron Atkinson with 50 pence that would drop through in front of all the apprentices putting the kit in was what Chelsea was, you know, at that time. And I was doing a deal for, for Andy Townsend for over two million pounds of a 50 pence coin that dropped in the BT box and came out and I had to keep putting it back in. And it was, you know, that was when I said, look, something's got to happen here. I've got to change the mentality of the club. You could see that the club needed finances, that the, the squad needed to, some help. You know, he wasn't going to do it drastically overnight, but he, he, he had a plan. I saw him just as a, as a real fan, as a real supporter. Everyone will say that. And that's what, um, that's what he was. He was uh, when I first met him, I realised the enthusiasm that he had for Chelsea. But it was through the eyes of a, of a fan, always, not as an investor or looking to be anything else. Um, he had a real passion for Chelsea. And I could see that. And I love working with him. I've got to say, it was really good fun to be around him. Um, very uh, comical guy, made you laugh. Um, but had this drive about him, you know, he's a successful businessman, um, but he had this real passion and drive to put Chelsea in another level. And that's what I think, you know, when we sat down when I first met him, um, you could see his ambitions were to keep himself as a fan but to get himself in at the board level to try and take, to take Chelsea up to the levels where he wanted them to go. And he, see, he could see where they could go. And I, th I think he felt, me coming to the club at that time, I had, I had them ambitions to, to, to take the club up to another level. And I think they sort of matched each other. And um, that was why we probably gelled and, went and got on very well. There was times when um, I'd have my afternoon where I'd be going to watch videos or I was going to do whatever we were doing in the afternoon to study the opponents or talk about the team, whatever it may be. And there was the odd occasion when Matthew would give me a phone, it would just be a phone call from out of the blue. Glenn, I'd like you to come down to London and uh, we'll have lunch. I said, I can't, Matthew, I've got plans this afternoon. We're, we're doing, don't worry about them. He said, I want to talk about the vision I've got for Chelsea going forward. I said, Matthew, in the end, OK, I'll see you there at one o'clock. So I have to drive back down here. So, you know, he's had a bottle of wine by then. <laughs> we started having so-called lunch and uh, he said, come and have a drink. I said, no, I'm driving, I can't have a drink. So um, I sat there and we, we, I, I listened to his vision. And, and when he starts going, you could see the passion coming out of him. It was lovely. It was really good. And we had some real laughs and we, it was very, very, very humorous. And um, it, it, it was the plans he was coming out, the money that he wanted to put in, the squad, the, you know, what players are we going to buy? And this was all over uh, the so-called lunch. I don't know if we ate any food, actually. <laughs> we just had a good conversation. I think that uh, football clubs have got to run themselves as, as businesses on the one hand, but, but never forgetting, of course, the, 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 sort of the, 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 the soul and the spirit of, of, of the football club and, and how much it means to the respective supporters. Those are Harding's words. He never forgot his roots, and that was why he was viewed so favourably, not only by Chelsea supporters, but by football fans all over the country. 
he became a public figure, well known to not just Chelsea fans, but it was publicised all around the country. And you would talk to people in pubs and they would all go, God, I wish we had a Matthew Harding. The players too grew to like the new director, including Frank Sinclair and Steve Clark. Yeah, I knew him quite well. Uh, we, we spent a little bit of time in each other's company. Was a good man, was, was a great catalyst for the club at that time. At, at the time when Matthew came in, he, he was fresh, he was enthusiastic. I had a decent friendship with him and, you know, he always stopped to talk to me and loved football, loved chatting about it, loved being around the players and sampling it that way. And you, you, you had that feeling that he just wished he was a player, you know, and you, you took that on board and tried to make him as happy as possible because you, you appreciated what he was trying to do at the football club. Harding, like Bates, wasn't afraid to stick up for Hoddle when things got off to a bad start under his management. I had a hard time when I first came the first six months. And we were second from bottom, I think, and we'd just been beaten at Southampton, I believe. We were playing Newcastle here. It was back in the day when you played two games in two days. And they were top of the league, Kevin Keegan was manager. And we had them at home. I remember coming out at the Dell, the old Dell, and there was a few fans giving me real stick, you know, especially as an ex-Tottenham player. At the time, they were sort of in a night in a different way, nicely saying, why don't you go back to Tottenham? <laughs> Can you imagine? And uh, I remember Matthew jumping off the, uh, the bus. He saw it all happening and he laid into him. And he said, you know, that, what he had to say. And I always remember that. And that was the balance between him and Ken, actually. Ken, I got a phone call that night in the hotel. He was on a cruise, he always used to go away. He phoned me from his cruise somewhere in the med or wherever he was in Barbados or wherever to reassure me you know that, that, that don't worry about your job let's get on with it if a couple of results will turn around and then you had Matthew confronting them in front you know as they as we're getting on the coach and so I had the support I knew I had the support from both of the key people at the club which was really good for me at the time we came back here and we scrapped a one nil victory I think Steeny scored didn't he he poked a little I think it was a little poke ball in from about a yard and we held on in the end because Newcastle were top of the league, flying, playing some great football. And uh, that was the turn of it, really. We, we, we got ourselves up, back up the league and ended up going to the cup final that year. A season that had begun with Hoddle and Harding's arrival on the scene ended with a trip to Wembley, our first for a major final in a generation. Though the day out was spoiled by four unanswered Manchester United goals, the signs pointed to Chelsea Football Club being on the rise again but more needed to be done. The main thing is what happens out there on 90 minutes of football match day, and that is when you, you rely on your players, the quality of your players, and the depth of the, the squad that you've got. Our depth was very, very, very sparse, very slim. So, you know, Matthew saw that, he saw that, and I think he worked hard on Ken as well to try and make him see it as well, and make the ambitions a lot higher, and um, the standard a lot higher, and the demands, we put demands on the players like they've never been put on here before, you know, um, back in the day then. And slowly but surely you could see it coming round on the training ground. The stadium too. The new North Stand opened in November 1994 and Harding relocated his and his children's season tickets there from their previous spot in the East Upper. He still socialised with friends and family in the pub before and after games, normally in the Imperial on the King's Road but he would change into a suit and tie before kick-off and watch the action unfold from the director's box. All the while, 
the friction between Bates and Harding was increasing. The pair fell out to such an extent, Harding was banned from the director's box. Hoddle and Colin Hutchinson, the long-standing chief executive, found themselves between the two. I was in the middle of that. Because Matthew was probably uh, younger and closer to my age, I think Ken thought I was in his camp and he had... But no, it was just... I was in no-one's camp. I was the manager of the club at the, at the time, and it was, it was difficult at times to be caught in the middle. But at the end of the day, I had to get my head down and, and, and think about the football side and, and get that right. What was happening, you know, in and around the board level, I had to detach myself to a certain degree. Colin Hutchinson was good on that one. A very difficult time, and uh, playing piggy in the middle was very, very draining. I did at the time an article in the programme which... Uh, gave the virtues of both sides and appealing for them to uh, come together. But right until the end, uh, the animosity was there. There was jealousy, there was envy. Everything was uh, thrown in there. Later, when the club was floated on the stock exchange in April 96, a detente between the pair was achieved. Loans were repaid and Harding was named vice-chairman after buying 9 million shares ahead of the 96-97 season. Rudhulitz first as player-manager. Harding would never see the campaign's glorious conclusion. The tragic death of Matthew Harding has touched not only the footballing nation, but the whole nation. When news broke of a helicopter crash in the north, no one knew one of the most colourful characters in the game today had been lost. Harding and three friends, John Baldy, Tony Burridge and Ray Dean, as well as pilot Michael Goss, were travelling back from the Blues' League Cup third-round defeat at Bolton when their helicopter came down shortly before 11pm. A match programme found by firefighters at the scene was the first clue the victims were football fans. The coaching staff and players were on the bus back to London when a reporter called at 1am with the news there were fears Matthew Harding was on board. Before 3am, moves were in place to get Harding's body identified. The tragic news was made public at 8am. Immediately, fans, and not just those of a Chelsea persuasion, gathered at Stamford Bridge, laying flowers, shirts, pictures, scarves, mementos and messages of love and respect. Chelsea held a board meeting and agreed to name the North Stand the Matthew Harding Stand. Training was called off, as was a reserve game scheduled to be played that day. The Premiership agreed to a minute's silence at all games that weekend, including Chelsea's. The home fixture with Tottenham, three days later, would take place. A mixture of disbelief and desolation engulfed the club, as everyone mourned Harding's death at the age of just 42. Tributes poured in from far and wide. Newcastle manager Kevin Keegan, Graham Kelly at the FA, Real Madrid's general manager, UEFA, the mayor of Hammersmith and Fulham, the Tate Gallery, Peter Osgood. The list goes on. So did the football. Chelsea had a game to prepare for, and Eddie Newton, one of Harding's favourite ever players, brings to mind how he felt that week. I remember hearing it on the news that apparently his, his helicopter had crashed. And like, you know, it didn't really sink in because you're still tired from the game. And then the next day, then, you, then it obviously came out in its entirety. And uh, I think it took everybody back, you know, we knew that he was a big supporter of the club. Not only that, he was very involved in the club. As, a, as someone that you meet, 
I, obviously I didn't know him f- totally well, but when you speak, when we spoke with him, he seemed a genuine guy. He seemed a guy that really wanted the club to go, and you know, wanted to go up, and he wanted to be part of that to to push it in the right direction. But you know, in life, there is always going to be tragedy, unfortunately. But as a professional, you have to keep going, and and I'm sure you want the show to go on and. And, and people to do well, and that's and that's all you try to do: train properly, do, and be respectful around the circumstances of what was going on. And that's all we could do. It was, it's weird because you, when you're a young man, you think you're Superman. You're a footballer. You're, you're fit as anything. You know, it's a good living. You just think you're Superman, and then when you hear someone like you know, just going like that, it kind of takes you a little bit back, and it, it, it kind of grounds you for a little bit, and. And, and realise how lucky you are in life sometimes. Frank Sinclair and Steve Clark also had to come to terms with what had happened. For the next few days, it was, uh, it was difficult to train properly, to work properly, but as professionals, we knew we had to go out and, and do as well as we could and, and try and get a result that would be a, a fitting tribute to, to Matthew's memory. And fortunately, we were able to do that, but it, it was a difficult time. Everybody had an association with him, so it was a tragic time um, at the football club when, when obviously he passed away in that accident. And as well as the other people on, let's not forget about the other people that was, you know, on that helicopter as well. You know, if anything, it, it, it grew us stronger together, and how it affected us, I think it made us stronger as a group. And you know, obviously, we went on to to do great things that season. By the time the Tottenham game came around, the areas outside the ground resembled a shrine to Harding. Before kickoff, Captain Dennis Wise and two of the other longest-serving players, Kevin Hitchcock and Steve Clark, carried a large wreath onto the pitch and laid it in front of the newly renamed stand. It simply read, Matthew, R.I.P. A pint of Guinness, Harding's tipple of choice, was symbolically placed on the centre circle. The ground fell silent, with the Chelsea players stood holding hands, facing the Matthew Harding stand. Please will the supporters of Chelsea and Tottenham be upstanding for a minute of silence to remember and respect Ray Dean, Tony Burridge, John Baldy, Mike Goss and our Vice Chairman Matthew Harding, who was so tragically taken from us on Tuesday night. Barry Davis's introduction for that evening's featured game on Match of the Day summed up the sentiment. Myriad thoughts through a minute of silence as Chelsea pay tribute to the man in the boardroom, the millionaire financier from the shed, a charismatic football lad. As a Chelsea supporter for 34 of his almost 43 years, the visit to Spurs would have been a highlight of the season. 
after the tragedy which has left five families bereaved it serves now as a commemoration and a thank you for what Matthew Harding brought to Chelsea Football Club. The match itself was dominated by the boys in blue. Hullett, starting his first league game of the season, opened the scoring. And though Tottenham's Chris Armstrong equalised before half-time, goals after the break from David Lee, a penalty, and Roberto Di Matteo ensured a deserved and emotional home win. Manager and captain delivered their verdict afterwards. The team responded as, you know, they wanted to do something back and uh, I was... I was I was more happy about the winning for him than the winning for, for Chelsea, for myself. And uh, after the match, uh, we had a team talk and uh, we all uh, wanted to dedicate this victory to Matthew Harding. We just wanted to win the game, you know. I think it's just a tribute to Matthew uh, from us to show a lot more passion and heart. Uh, we just wanted the man, we wanted to win for the man. And it's not much I can say, I just feel for his family and and you don't know what to say, really, and you just feel for them, really. We've just got to win something now, simple as that. Uh, we've got to go out and uh, make his dream come true. We are, uh, we have uh, Matthew Harding always in our hearts, and I'm not talking about only the players, but also the fans, the staff, people who work here, and he will uh, be with us for forever. As Alan Sugar said to me after the match, we never had a chance today. They were absolutely, the crowd just carried the team through to win 3-1. Win it was a strange moment. Uh, it was almost if, if we were not there. Uh, it's, 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 it's something like uh, you, you don't have to do your best because some, some force of something like that helps you to do what you had to do. Harding's funeral was held a few days later in Ditchling, Sussex. Representing Chelsea were Bates, Hullett and Hoddle. It was a, you know, a dreadful funeral to go to, it really was. We should never have been going to that funeral at his age and the enthusiasm and the, you know, he has for life and, and it was very sad. Harding's great friend, Francis Maud, remembered him in one of the addresses given that day. This was how his heartfelt tribute concluded. Never look back, Matthew used to say, but we will look back with love and thanks to an extraordinary man. And when we grieve for his going, as we mourn his loss, let's remember him as he was and smile through the tears. Harding's legacy was felt long after his death. His financial investment, somewhere in the region of £26.5 million, was important in elevating Chelsea to the next level on and off the pitch. It was something Bates acknowledged in public. Matthew's death doesn't and will not affect our future plans. Such was his devotion to the club that he ensured that his promised financial commitment was totally in place, which is evidenced by the Southern Complex which you can see rising as we speak. It's the next phase of achieving his, and indeed all Chelsea fans, dream of having a world-class team in a world-class stadium. A little over a year before his death, Harding was part of what would become known as the Marriott Accord, the term given to the Chelsea board meeting 
held at the prosaic Marriott Hotel in Slough the day after the 95 Cup final. It was an unlikely setting for one of the most significant days in the club's history, when a decision was made by Bates, Harding, Hutchinson and Hoddle to start investing significant amounts of money in the team. Hullett was the first big-name signing. Matthew got as excited as anyone, as a fan, to really... He said, I'm pinching myself, Glenn. He said, I'm pinching myself. I remember him. And we really got... Rude Hullett's coming, yeah. The touch paper had been lit. Mark Hughes was the next star to arrive, followed mid-season by Dan Petrescu, and then the trio of internationals who joined in the summer of 96, covered in the first episode of this podcast series. Harding's money had proven pivotal in helping transform Chelsea into a club that would soon regularly be challenging for silverware. It was a very exciting time. Died sort of shortly after, and that's when we started the success, when we had the FA Cup with Middlesbrough, and from there we won trophy after trophy, and he never really got to see that side of Chelsea, which I think was a shame. It was such a shock, and there was a sense of uh, truncated fulfilment that he... With Rude Hullet in charge, with Matthew Harding investing and being a figurehead for the this this benign figurehead for the for the support, mm. you felt anything was possible. A Chelsea man, awful thing to happen. Um, the fact that it's still remembered today tells you how much it meant to the um, the followers of Chelsea. I didn't know him personally, but I knew exactly what he stood for. I knew he was Chelsea to the core. And no, it, it, it's, it's just a dreadful, a dreadful episode in the history of Chelsea. Sometimes that just binds people together within the dressing room, within the boardroom, and certainly around the ground. And you, you would never want it to happen, but if tragedy does fall, sometimes to the memory of the person who we've lost. You know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. He can't be here to appreciate it, but what would have, what would have uh, accrued from that, I think he would be thrilled with in the sense of uh, the, the love and the remembrance. It would have brought everybody onto the same page and, and the fact that there was a trophy at the end, I know his name was mentioned a lot in the build-up and, and the let's do it for Matthew and the family and um, it would have given them some, some comfort at a terrible time. As Martin Tyler alludes to, the sense of tremendous unity at the club that season played its part in propelling the Blues to FA Cup glory. The players, like Steve Clark, felt its force. It was a great stimulus for the club and Matthew was a big part of pushing the club forward at that time. We're all very grateful to what he did for us and, and, the, and the help that he gave the club at that time. I think he'll always be remembered and it was, it's fantastic that the stand is still always going to make us remember him when you come to Stamford Bridge. So does the regular chanting of his name at every home and away game. It's still a bit surreal. Mm, it puts yeah. a lump it's in my emotional. throat. Yeah, it's yeah. emotional. Yeah. It's lovely to think that fans still think of him. And, you know, the fact they sing his name is lovely. From generation to generation, the Hardings fanaticism lives on to this day. My eldest is five now, and I brought him up to do the Chelsea tour the other week to have a look round, and it was great to be able to sort of stand on the pitch by the dugouts and actually tell him about the stand and, you know, tell him a bit more about his granddad, who he's never met. So it's great that legacy can yeah. continue.
Yeah, we tell him that we, he helped Chelsea f Football Club out with the money he made from his work and um, that Chelsea needed some help, he felt at the time, and wanted to, just wanted to help, wanted to make the team better on and off the pitch.